Fundamental to the redemptive narrative of Scripture is the Lamb. Beginning back in Genesis chapter 3, the death and shed blood of a lamb became the means by which humanity's sins could be atoned or covered. Though the death of a lamb could not provide eternal atonement or redemption, it pointed to a greater lamb that could. And that lamb is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Through his death and shed blood, he provides the eternal atonement and redemption humanity needs. The lamb as the symbol of redemption or deliverance, is central to the Lord's Passover. The Jews first celebrated Passover under the shadow of Egyptian oppression. In response to Pharaoh's refusal to set God's people free, Yahweh sent ten plagues upon Egypt, culminating with the death of all firstborn males, animals, and humans. And while some of the plagues only affected the Egyptians, the tenth plague affected both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Exodus 11.5 says, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. However, God provided the children of Israel with the means for redemption from the coming judgment in the form of a Passover lamb. On Nisan 10, each household chose a year-old male lamb and examined that lamb for the next four days to ensure that it was blemish-free. On Nisan 14, the head of the house slaughtered the lamb on the threshold of the house at twilight. After slaughtering the lamb, its blood was placed on each side post and lintel of the doorway. Wherever the angel of death saw the blood-stained doorpost, he passed over that house. Where there was no blood-stained doorpost, the firstborn male died. And so, by means of a Passover lamb, the children of Israel learned the significance of redemption and substitutionary atonement. Since the Exodus event, the Passover has served as a reminder of God's redemption in the past through a lamb, and as a prophecy that God would someday redeem humanity from sin through the lamb, Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his lamb, in fulfillment of Abraham's promise to Isaac in Genesis 22, verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Thus, when Jesus Christ appeared before John the baptizer, almost 2,000 years later, John recognized the fulfillment of the type and declared in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This lamb was chosen by God before the foundations of the world and then chosen by humanity on the great Sabbath, Nisan 10, A.D. 29. Christ the lamb was purchased for 30 pieces of silver, presented to the people as Messiah and Lord, and then finally probed for blemishes and proven spotless and sinless. After all of that, the lamb was slaughtered as the Passover sacrifice. Indeed, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. An often propagated statement amongst Christians is that the actual day of Christ's death is unimportant. The proponents of this view state that it is enough for people just to know that Jesus died and rose again. Such a view, however, is simply not accurate. If one follows their logic that the when of Christ's death is unimportant, then the how of his death would not matter either. Thus, Christ could have died by stoning or strangulation if we follow such philosophy. However, when Jesus died is as vital to our faith 
as to how he died. In the same epistle in which Paul revealed that Christ died as the Passover lamb, he also stated how Christ died. He states in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul clearly stated how Christ died, according to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures to which Paul refers are known collectively as the Old Testament. Now notice that, remember that Paul stated that Christ our Passover lamb has also been sacrificed. Thus the specific Old Testament scriptures, which reveal not only the how but the when of Christ's death, are those about the Passover lamb. Regarding the how and when of Christ's death, there are three distinct attitudes. First, there are those who are satisfied with simply accepting the tradition and teachings of the apostate church, which claim that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, died on Good Friday, and rose on Easter Sunday. Second, there are those who ridicule those who inquire into the how and when, and completely ignore the clear teachings of Scripture. And third, there are some who seriously desire to know the how and when of Christ's death, and diligently search and study the Scriptures to discover the answers. Prayerfully, I hope that as you are listening, you are those genuine believers in the third group. That you are those who want to seriously know the how and when of Christ's death. That you're willing to diligently search and study the scriptures to uncover those answers. Remember in Luke 24, 25, Jesus rebuked the two disciples on the Emmaus road as being foolish men of slow and heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And then in verse 27 of Luke 24, he said, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Don't be those foolish men. Don't be those who are slow to heart. Let's search the scriptures. Let's search the scriptures and see the lamb. And as we behold the lamb, let's consider the slaughter of the lamb. We're going to begin with when the lamb was slaughtered with when the lamb was slaughtered. And we're going to begin with the day of slaughter on the Psalm 14. The day of slaughter on the Psalm 14. Again, Paul stated that Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now, in order for Christ to be the Passover lamb, he would have needed to die on the 14th day of the same month, Nisan 14, when the other Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Exodus 12:6. You shall keep it until the 14th day, on the, of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now, while the New Testament does not specify that Christ died on Nisan 14, it does state that Christ was crucified the day before the Sabbath. Mark 15, 37 and 42. And Jesus uttered a loud voice and breathed his last. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now that Christ was crucified before the Sabbath has men, led many to mistakenly believe that Christ died on Friday. However, according to John 19.14, Christ was presented to the Jews for crucifixion on the day of preparation for the Passover. John 19.14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. This day of preparation 
began at evening on Nisan 13 and lasted up until the official start of Passover on Nisan 14 at 3 p.m. with the slaughter of the lambs. Now after the crucifixion of Christ in Matthew 27, 62-63, it states that the religious rulers came to Pilate on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, and to conjole him to set a guard and seal the tomb, lest his disciples come and steal him away. Now the day of preparation began the evening of Nisan 13, lasted until the afternoon of Nisan 14. Thus, the next day would be Nisan 15. Now, Nisan 15 begins a seven-day celebration known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this day is referred to as the day after the Passover. Numbers 33, verse 3. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month on the next day after the Passover. Joshua 5.11 says, On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, the unleavened cakes, and the parched grain. So this day after the Passover, also known as the first day of unleavened bread, and Scripture reveals to us that it is to be treated as a holy convocation or holy assembly. Exodus 12.16 On the first day of unleavened bread, ye shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work shall be done on them. Leviticus 23, verse 7. On the first day of unleavened bread, ye shall have a holy convocation. Ye shall do no laborious work. So what that means, a holy convocation or holy assembly, is that the first day of unleavened bread, Nisan the 15th, is to be treated as a Sabbath day. Therefore, there's an additional Sabbath along with the weekly Sabbath. So the first day of unleavened bread is known as the Passover Sabbath. The addition of this holy convocation necessitates that any time Nisan 15 falls on any other day than a Saturday, the Jews would celebrate two Sabbaths that week. Now notice that in Luke 23, verses 53 to 54, it states, that Nicodemus and Joseph quickly buried Jesus because it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. He took down the body, wrapped it in a linen cloth, laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. Verse 53 of Luke 23 says, It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. That is, it was the evening of Nisan 14 and the Passover Sabbath, the first day of unleavened bread, Nisan 15, was about to begin. Now, Mark 16.1 states that when the Sabbath was passed, the women purchased spices to anoint Jesus' buried body. Mark 16.1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. However, Luke 23.55-56 states that the women prepared the spices before and rested on the Sabbath. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. How is it possible that the same women bought the spices after the Sabbath and then prepared them before the Sabbath? The answer lies in the fact that the Sabbath mentioned in Mark 16, one is the Passover Sabbath, 
the first day of unleavened bread in Asan 15. The Sabbath referred to in Luke 23.56 is the weekly Sabbath. In other words, the women purchased and prepared the spices on Friday, Nisan 16. On Saturday, Nisan 17, the women marked the weekly Sabbath. That evening, after the Sabbath, they approached the tomb to anoint the body. Now, Matthew 28, verse 1 says, Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, I want you to notice here the phrase, now, after the Sabbath. The term Sabbath here, sabbaton, is a genitive plural noun. And because it is plural, it provides for the celebration of more than one Sabbath that week. The term after, now after the Sabbath, after refers to the period generally after sunset, but before night, which we would call evening. Now again, note the phrase, now after the Sabbath. That term, now. When the term now precedes a word in the genitive case, it means at the end of or at the close of. Thus, this translation can be rendered as the Sabbath having just passed or at the end of the Sabbaths, plural. See, the Sabbaths would have come to an end at 6 p.m. on Saturday evening. The next phrase, as it began to dawn, epiphosco, means to draw near and refers to the period leading up to the first day of the week. Thus, the phrase, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, can be translated as it was drawing on to the first day of the week. By Jewish reckoning, the dawning or beginning of a day begins at 6 p.m. So these women came to the tomb after the Sabbaths, not at Sunday sunrise, but on Saturday evening. Because Christ is the Passover lamb, he must die on Nisan 14. As well, Christ prophesied that he would be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. By putting together the timeline and working backwards from Saturday, there's no doubt that Nisan 14 was a Wednesday, not a Friday or a Thursday. At the end of the weekly Sabbath, Nisan 17, the women came to the tomb. On Friday, Nisan 16, the women bought and prepared the spices to place on the buried body of Jesus. Thursday, Nisan 15, was the Passover Sabbath in which no work could be done. That was the day when the religious leaders wanted a guard set on the tomb. And therefore, that brings us back to Wednesday, Nisan 14, for the day that Christ the Passover lamb was slaughtered. And again, as we continue looking at the when the lamb was slaughtered, we establish the day of slaughter was Nisan 14, but the scripture also establishes the time of slaughter at twilight. Again, according to Exodus 12.6, the Passover lambs were to be slaughtered at twilight. Exodus 12.6 says, Ye shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now, the word twilight is literally rendered in the Hebrew text as between the evenings, typically the time between sunset and darkness. The Pharisees, however, interpret the phrase between the evenings to mean the time beginning of sunset, 3 p.m., until the actual sunset at 6 p.m. 
Hence, the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed beginning at 3 p.m. on Nisan 14. Now, the gospel accounts provide a timeline for Christ's final hours. According to John 19, 14 and 15, Pilate, who had previously deemed Jesus as not guilty, goaded the Jewish religious leaders by referring to Jesus as their king. Enraged, they cry out for Christ's crucifixion. John 19, 14. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. All that took place around the sixth hour. Now the Apostle John used the Roman reckoning of time in his Gospels. Hence the sixth hour corresponds to 6 a.m. In Mark 15, 25... Christ was placed on the cross and crucified at the third hour. Mark used the Jewish reckoning of time, which places Christ on the cross at 9 a.m. Next, in Matthew 27, 45, it tells us that the site of the crucifixion was engulfed in total darkness for three hours from the sixth to the ninth hour. Like Mark, Matthew also used the Jewish reckoning of time. So Calvary was engulfed in darkness from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. Then Matthew records in 2746 that around the ninth hour or around 3 p.m., Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27 and verse 50, Matthew recorded that shortly after this, Jesus cried out again and then died. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, at the very hour when the priests began to slaughter the Passover lambs, Jesus laid down his own life as the Passover lamb to initiate our redemption from sin, death, and eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Now, those final words to which Matthew referred are recorded in John 19, verse 30. It is finished. The Greek term, tetelestai, translated as it is finished, is an accounting term, meaning paid in full. Jesus did not say that he was finished, but that it was finished. Finished. In other words, his redemptive work as the Passover lamb was finished. As the Passover lamb, he took the ransom sinners owed to God and paid it in full. So Christ as the Passover lamb was slaughtered on Wednesday, Nisan 14th at twilight or 3 p.m. The exact day and time when Passover lambs were sacrificed. Not only do we have the when provided, but we also have the how provided to us in Scripture. So our second point here, as we consider the slaughter of the lamb, is the how the lamb was slaughtered. We know the when, let's look at the how. And the first point we want to deal with is the fact of he was slaughtered at the threshold. The lambs were slaughtered at the threshold. Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 and 22. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Exodus 12, verse 22. You shall take a bunch of the hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, 
and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. Now when the Jews partook of the Passover in Egypt, the head of the house killed the lamb in the doorway of the house so that each family member could watch. After slaughtering the lamb, the lamb's blood was drained into the threshold at the bottom of the door. The term threshold means basin or cup. Now, since houses predated temples, they acted as the center of worship, and the threshold of the house served as the altar. As the altar, the threshold of the door contained a cavity or receptacle, i.e. basin or cup, where the blood of the lamb would be drained. So after draining the blood, the head of the household dipped the hyssop in the blood within the threshold and applied the blood to the top and side post of the door. In essence, the door became sealed on all four sides by the blood. And the blood served as a mark of identification that all inside were sealed by the blood of the Passover lamb. Now the picture of blood here applied to that door points to the cross some 1,400 years before the actual event. The lentil above the door points to the crown of thorns mashed into the head of the Messiah. The blood dripping down from the lentil pictures the blood dripping down the face of Christ. The blood-stained post to the right and to the left of the door pictures the nails that pierced Christ's wrist. And the basin in the threshold pictures the nails that pierced our Messiah's feet and the blood that pulled at the foot of the cross. As well, the threshold served as a place to solemnize marriage contracts. See, among the Arabs of the Sinai Peninsula, the bridegroom would come with a lamb to the tent of a bride's father, would stand at the doorway and slit the throat of the lamb. And once the blood fell on the threshold, the marriage was completed. In Egypt, they would kill the sacrifice at the door, pour the blood on the threshold of the bridegroom's house. The bride would then step over the threshold, thus solemnizing the marriage. So the slaughtering of the Passover lamb in Egypt was performed at the threshold of the houses and as such initiated a marriage between Yahweh and Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31-33 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them and on their hearts, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the night of the Passover in Egypt, God passed over the threshold of the houses marked by blood and betrothed himself to those within the house. The next day when Israel left Egypt, they passed over the blood-stained threshold, thus solemnizing the marriage between them and Yahweh. And prophetically, that threshold covenant points to the marriage of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to the bride, the church. And interestingly, his blood was poured out at the threshold of God's kingdom, which is Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches 
out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reelings to all the peoples around. That term cup in Zechariah 12, 1 and 2 is the same term translated as threshold. And so when Jesus died and shed his blood as the Passover lamb, his blood was poured out at Jerusalem, the threshold of God. And by shedding his blood on the threshold, he initiated the betrothing of himself to us, the church. This threshold covenant, also known as a Passover covenant, because the one entering into the covenant has to pass over the threshold. See, on the night of that first Passover, God did not pass by the house marked by blood, but alternatively, He passed over the threshold, and He entered the homes of those people, and He entered into a covenant relationship with them. And just as the Israelites who passed through that blood-stained door found safety, so all who passed through the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, are saved from eternal damnation. Jesus himself is the door and declares that all who enter will find safety. John 10 verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so as we talk about the how the lamb was slaughtered, he was slaughtered at the threshold. And secondly, he was slaughtered without breaking any bones. Exodus 12 and verse 46. It has to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. God specifically prohibited against breaking any of the Passover lamb's bones when they were slaughtered. And when Christ the Passover lamb was slaughtered to take away the sin of the world, Scripture records that not one of his bones were broken. John 19, 33 and 36. But coming to Jesus, they did not break his legs, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. You see, in order to hasten the death of those crucified, the victim's legs would be broken. However, when the soldiers approached Christ, they found he was already dead. Now the Apostle John states that this was a fulfillment of scripture. The scripture to which he refers is Exodus twelve forty six which later is applied prophetically to Christ in Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. You know, many often wonder why. Why did God give such a strange prohibition not to break the legs of the Passover lamb? When Scripture supplies no reason, only one reason will genuinely suffice. And that is that God gave this very specific and odd detail about the Passover lambs in anticipation of its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the Passover lamb. You see, the vast majority of crucifixion victims had their legs broken. Both the malefactors who died with Christ had their legs broken. Yet Christ's bones remained unbroken. They say the devil is in the details. But such a philosophy borders on blasphemy. Because it is God who is a God of details. God provides such exacting details such as unbroken bones in his prophecies and then fulfills them in exacting detail. A seemingly insignificant detail about unbroken bones becomes a significant detail in identifying the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so to the how we see that the lamb was slaughtered at the threshold. 
We see that the lamb was slaughtered without breaking any bones. And we see how the lamb is slaughtered as a sin offering and peace offering. Slaughtered as a sin offering and peace offering. You see, during the Passover festival, lambs were sacrificed as both sin offerings and peace offerings. For the sin offering, the sacrificial lamb was slaughtered at the gate, and then it was then placed on the altar and consumed by the fire. When a peace offering was made, a portion of the sacrificial animal was sacrificed, while the remainder of the animal was consumed by the priest and the offerers. Now in the sin offering of the sacrificial lamb, it was offered as a general atonement for sin. By offering a sin offering sacrifice, the offerer was repenting of their sin and petitioning God to restore them to fellowship with Him. As the, the Passover lamb, Christ offered Himself as the sin offering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, proper exegesis here reveals that the term sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21 translates the Greek term hamartia. In the Septuagint, hamartia translates the Hebrew term hatat, which is the term for both sin and sin offering. In fact, the term hatat is translated as sin offering 116 times. For example, in Exodus 30 verse 10, uh, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering, the hatat of atonement, once a year throughout your generations. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, quote, in Leviticus and in Numbers, the noun appears many times alternating in meaning between sin, the reality of disobedience to God, and sin offering, the means of removing the guilt and penalty of sin before the Lord through the sacrificial system. Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that Christ knew no sin, but became the sin offering. In other words, he had no sin nature. However, because he was the sinless one, God made him the sin offering so that his wrath against humanity's sin could be assuaged. The Tree of Life version, a Messianic Jewish translation of the scriptures, translates 2 Corinthians 5.21 as follows. He made the one who knew no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And regarding the peace offering, the peace offering was given as a means of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And by giving back a portion of the animal to the offers, the peace, offer, peace offering rather demonstrated God's provision for his people. As well, the sharing of the sacrificial animal between God and the people typifies the fellowship or communion which God enjoys with his people. And as the Passover lamb, Christ offered himself as the peace offering, establishing that peace between God and humanity. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Colossians 1.20, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. My friends, because of our sin, God's holiness must be vindicated. Therefore, God has judged us, judged humanity with death and separation from him. However, the slaughter of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was God's provision of mercy to the whole world. Like the Passover lambs of the past, Christ's death was a substitutionary death. 
As the Lamb of God, He died in our place. His blood covered our sin so that God's wrath would pass over all of us who repent of our sins and place our faith in the gospel as detailed in 1 Corinthians 5, or 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. As we stated before, I'll state again, the specific Old Testament scriptures about the Passover lamb reveal the how and the when of the death of Jesus Christ for humanity's sin. The how and the when are integral parts of the gospel. They guaranteed that the one named Jesus is indeed the Passover lamb and is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, the lamb that is led to the slaughter. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, I thank you for our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb not only that was chosen, but that was then slaughtered as our substitute. Died the death we could not die. Paid the price, paid the ransom we could not pay. And Father, without a doubt, he died the Passover lamb. He died the once for all sacrifice because he fulfilled in exacting, specific detail every little nuance you placed there some 1,500 years before. I thank you, Lord, that you're a God of details. I thank you, God, that you set out every detail. And because you're so detail-oriented, we need not fear that his sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It's all sufficient for all time. His blood covers all sin and, that, and it saves and secures us for all eternity. So Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of the Lamb. We thank you, Lord, and look forward now to the glorification of the Lamb. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.